This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. So the Major League Baseball second half of the season is underway. Mets get going tomorrow with what will be an interesting weekend series at home against the San Diego Padres, one of the better teams in the National League. Jacob Perry and Jake Montgomery producing the show for us this evening. And of course, your participation over the phone at 1-800-919-3776. Also, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Pat O'Keefe 12. So the Yankees in game two of this doubleheader against the Astros after losing in walk-off fashion. You heard the update at the top of the hour. A 3-2 to walk-off win for Houston in the first game back from the All-Star break. Game two, some optimism for the Yankees because coming in, you think, okay, we get... Another weapon added to our arsenal, Domingo Herman, who over the last three or four years, when he has pitched, has pitched very well, making his season debut in an ideal world. And let's be honest, in the Yankees world this season, pretty much everything has been ideal, which has led to their record. In an ideal world, Herman can pick up the slack for Luis Severino while he is out of the rotation a rough re-entry into the major leagues for Herman, as in the first inning he gives up three consecutive hits, including back-to-back home runs, Jordan Alvarez, Alex Bregman, and then a sharp single to left field uh, for Kyle Tucker, and then a base on ball. So he's in a little bit of trouble. First and second, two men out, bottom of the first inning. But this just go Look, this is as tough a scenario as the Yankees could have come back from All-Star break too. First of all, most of this is in recent years, you know, when I was growing up the the All-Star break was was 3 days. It was Monday, the home run derby, Tuesday the All-Star game, Wednesday a traditional day off. The rest of Major League Baseball um is back in action on Thursday. And then at some point it got extended where teams would get in a sliding catch for John Carlos Stanton to end the inning. You don't see that that often. At some point, they started giving teams Thursday off and elongating the All-Star break. Obviously, you know, rest is a big thing in professional sports these days. Now they've kind of settled back to the way it used to be, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, and then you have the Thursday off for most teams, and then you, you you start on Friday after the All-Star break. So now they give you those extra days off, except with the lockout this year, and a lot of those games, all of those games, the first week of the season were canceled and they got to make them up this is how they're making up the Yankees Astros series so the Yankees come out of the all-star break uh, after the day off yesterday the only true day off that the all-stars get and the quarter of the roster was in the all-star game and then they play a noon local time game in Houston against look that's the one team you don't want to see and if there's any questions on how Aaron Boone is going to play the second half of the season I think a lot of them were not necessarily answered but you can start to put together how he's going to approach the stretch run of the season with a 13-game lead in the American League East. Because he, to say he's easing his team back into the second half of the season off of the All-Star break would be an understatement. Aaron Judge, DHing both games today. Um, Stanton didn't start game one. Josh Donaldson didn't start game one. You know, Trevino started game one. He's on the bench now. You usually do that with your catcher. He's not going to start both ends of a doubleheader. But... This is how, and knowing Boone as I do and knowing how the Yankees have run things in recent years, this is how they're going to approach the stretch run of the season with this 13-game lead in the division. They're not giving up that lead in the division. But where it could get interesting, and I've been talking about this for weeks, the importance of home field advantage 
in a potential American League Championship Series. Because with the Yankees' 3-2 loss, which we'll talk about in a minute earlier today, they now have a three-and-a-half game lead over the Astros. Astros win today, and like I said, they're already up 2 to nothing heading to the second inning. Astros win today. The Yankees basically begin the second half of the season with a two-and-a-half game lead over them. And by the way, the Astros have already clinched the season series. They've won four out of six with their win earlier today. So if the Yankees and Astros do finish with the same record, the Astros would get home field advantage based on the tiebreaker. And that's significant. Again, I've been big on this for a couple of weeks. I'm not the only one who has been. But the Yankees and the Astros in recent history have shown in their playoff meetings that home field advantage is extremely important. 2017, a road team did not win a single game in the ALCS. 2019, the Yankees lost in six. They lost game six in Houston when Jose Altuve hit the walk-off home run over off of Aroldis Chapman. Home field advantage, it doesn't always play out that way. But the Yankees, two things about them this year. They've lost 12 games at home. They're 37-12 and 12 at home. That is by far the best record in baseball. You know what's the second best home record in baseball? The Houston Astros. They're 29-14. and 14, So they're right behind the Yankees, at least in terms of losses on their home field. So that's a factor. So it'll be interesting to see how Boone approaches that down the stretch of the season when the Yankees will likely have the division wrapped up, but not necessarily the race for the overall best record in the American League. The first game of this doubleheader played out like so many in this season series have so far. Think about this. This is an amazing stat. You may have heard it watching or listening to the broadcast earlier today. The Astros in their season series against the Yankees, have not had a single at-bat in which they trailed. Think about that. They've played six games. The Yankees have won two of them. Both of the Yankee wins were walk-off wins in that great four-game series at the stadium in late June. Aaron Judge in the first game had a walk-off single after Aaron Hicks had tied it with a huge home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. And then on the Sunday of that series, it went to extra innings, and Judge hit a walk-off three-run home run. And in each of those two Yankee wins, the walk-off win, the walk-off winning play was the only point in either of those games in which the Yankees held the lead. So Houston's had their number. And the easiest thing to point to is the pitching. Their starting pitching coming into today had a 0.93 earned run average against Yankee hitters. 0.93. So the Yankees have not been able to solve this Houston pitching staff at all. And that in recent years has been the troubling thing for the Yankees in the postseason. The Yankees have done a great job this year fattening up their record against the poorest teams of the American League. The Kansas City Royals the Los Angeles Angels, the Texas Rangers, the Tigers, the Orioles before they started playing well, the Guardians before they started playing well. Yankees have done their job against those teams, which in recent years, part of the frustration for Yankee fans was that they would stub their toe in a series against Baltimore time and time again or stub their toe in a series against the Tigers. This year they took care of business, but if you project this, into the postseason, 
the Yankees are not going to be facing that caliber of pitching in the playoffs. They're going to be facing pitching the likes of what they see when they play the Astros. Good pitching generally beats good hitting in a big spot. We see it every year in the All-Star game. The All-Star game, and I know it's an exhibition game, but look at the scores of recent All-Star games. Good pitching, for the most part in the All-Star game, beats good hitting. And you have the best pitchers in baseball, and you have the best hitters in baseball, and that's what you have in the playoffs. And the Yankees have not been up to snuff batting-wise against the best pitching in baseball in recent postseasons. And we're seeing that play out again. I mean, the scores of these games, the first game of that four-game series in the Bronx with the judge walk-off single, Yankees win 7-6. Then they lose 3-1. They lose 3-0. That was the day they were no-hit by a combination of Astros pitchers. And then they won 6-3 when judge hit the walk-off home run. Uh, A single game in Houston a couple weeks ago, Yankees lose 2-1. And then earlier today, they lose 3-2. So they're all very tight games. They're all very low-scoring games. And look, there's two teams that Yankee fans continue to be leery of, and for good reason, the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros. Now, the Yankees exorcise some of those demons, some of those concerns against the Red Sox by bludgeoning them their final two games before the All-Star break. It was in 14-1 and 13-2, 27-3 over those two games. But they've done no such thing against the Astros. And there's a sense when the Yankees play the Astros now. I mean, look, this has been going on now. 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. This is six years now since Girardi was the manager and took the Yankees to the ALCS against this team. And now there's a sense that when the Yankees play the Astros, there's a sense of, oh, here we go again. That's exactly what Yankee fans are thinking right now after the back-to-back home runs in the bottom of the first inning, giving Houston a 2-0 lead. Here we go again. So a little on to uh, the game earlier today. Um, almost uh, a terrific comeback for the Yankees. They were down to their final out, top of the ninth inning, down 2-1. to one. LeMahieu's home run leading to the only run of the game. And Aaron Boone pushing the right button. He had some options on the bench. He could have gone Josh Donaldson with a runner on second base and two outs. He obviously has more power than Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. Donaldson puts one over the fence. Yankees take the lead. Kiner-Falefa is the direction that Aaron Boone went, uh, came through with a dribbling single through the left side of the infield. Hicks scored from second, tied the game, and then you think the Yankees are all set up because Michael King was warming in the bullpen. He comes on, and immediately Houston has second and third and nobody out. And after an out... And then they intentionally walk Jordan Alvarez to load the bases. Another strikeout. And you've got bases loaded, two outs, one batter from getting out of the inning. And unfortunately for the Yankees, they could not get that third out. J.J. Matajevic pinch hit a single to shortstop. Kiner Falefa dove into the hole, popped up, threw the ball to second base, thinking that was his only option to get a force play there. And Torres, who was playing second base, was way out in right field and didn't cover the bag. If you look at the play, it doesn't look like Torres would have gotten to the base in time. But if you also look at the play, you notice that Torres didn't make an effort to get to second base in time. So that was something that Aaron Boone was asked about after the game, about Glaber not covering second base on the walk-off hit. Understanding there's probably no play or a tough play at that. Should Glaber have went over there and covered second? I don't think we looked at it. I don't think with where we had him played, I don't think we were going to have a, a chance to get there. In the ninth inning, it didn't seem like he ran particularly hard down the line. Is he okay physically? He's okay. 
All right, so Glaber coming off a really strong surge to finish his first half of the season. Okay, according to Aaron Boone. How about the fact that the Yankees play yet another tight game against this Astros squad? I mean, it seems like every game, you know, kind of kind of comes down to this for, for for the two teams. And, you know, you know it's going to be a battle every time. And, uh, you know, I thought we did a good job scratching. I thought we had actually good at-bats against Javier today, too, you know. And had a chance to break it open and, and a couple of good at-bats from, uh, or not break it open, but but punched through by um, Carpenter and Glaber there, uh, you know, where they hit the ball hard. But couldn't couldn't get through there and, um, you know, but and then their bullpen was pretty tough against us today. Obviously, we were able to string a rally there late. The concerning thing about the Yankees and the way they play the Astros, they have made the right play the vast, vast majority of the time during this season so far. But when they play Houston, it's kind of like in recent years when they would play Tampa Bay and the Rays would be buttoned up and fundamentally sound and the Yankees would always make that one killer mistake. Well, they kind of did that in the third inning of the first game today. Down 2 nothing. LeMahieu walks, Rizzo singles, and then Judge walks. So you got the bases loaded, you've got nobody out, you've got Matt Carpenter, who I think is like a 460 career hitter with the bases loaded, and he smokes one to first base, but Judge didn't freeze on the play. Judge, on the crack of the bat, just took off. Ball was caught, stepped on the bag for a double play, kills the rally so after the game Boone was asked if Judge could have done anything differently when he got doubled off in the third inning if you react perfectly the thing is if if you flinch at all or any momentum just kind of the perfect way it was hit where it's on a line Gurriel's momentum's coming into the bag and if he reacts properly probably he's probably sticking his head into the ball too so it's kind of like a that's as tough a one as you're going to get, and, and that's probably more often than not, unfortunately, going to be the result. Um, you got to just react perfectly, stay underneath the ball. Um, yeah. All right, so Yankees lose the opener 3-2, to two, trailing 2 nothing. top of the second inning. It's Domingo Herman who gave up back-to-back home runs in the first. Luis Garcia, who's had a nice year for Houston, the pitching matchup. you just love to see the Yankees make some kind of a stand against this team. Solve the pitching. Put some runs on the board. Put some pressure on this Astros team. Make a statement like the Mets made against the Atlanta Braves just before the All-Star break. That's really all you're looking for because this is the last time that the Yankees and the Astros will share the field until we all think the American League Championship Series in October. Plenty to talk about with the Mets. Pat Ragazzo, uh, kind enough to join us on the eve of the second half of the season, covers the Mets fan nation on SI.com. Pat, how you doing tonight? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, thanks for hopping on with us. It's great to uh, hear your thoughts on uh, the second half of the season and really the next couple of weeks, which could be really interesting for this team. I, I would imagine, Pat, it was obviously a working break for the Mets front office, uh, most front offices throughout baseball with the trade deadline around the corner. Let me start with this. Outside of Juan Soto, who we will get to, obviously, and outside of a healthy Jacob deGrom, what is the biggest need or needs for the Mets as the deadline approaches? Well, I really think over the past couple of weeks, um, the Mets finished up their first half with a 5-2 and two road trip, of course, taking a series in Atlanta over the Braves and winning 3-4 at Wrigley Field over the rebuilding Cubs. But it's pretty 
evident over the last couple weeks, a month and a half or so, that the Mets could use another high-leverage relief arm, if not two of those uh, bullpen options, uh, you know, as we inch closer to the deadline, as well as a bat. Um, the Mets, beyond Pete Alonso, have really lacked power, as well as Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor. So they're going to be looking for another bat, as well as one to two relief arms out there on the deadline, as we're still 12 days away. And, of course, the trade buzz has only continued to grow and will continue to do so as we get closer to the date. I mean, the Soto thing, now that he's on the trade block, is so interesting because when you combine, you know, who he is as a player, you know, his approach at the plate, his age, the fact that he's done it on the biggest stage already, I I can't remember the last time a player with all of those characteristics was available at such a young age, Pat. Where do you see the Juan Soto situation as far as the Mets are concerned? Do they go all in on him and do they try to do it now? Right, so a Juan Soto trade would be essentially going all in, whether it be the Mets or a number of other teams, of course, who have called and checked in with the Nationals, because that's what you do when one of the game's best young stars is available. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and the Nationals are going to be looking for a, a massive haul of top prospects. Uh, you know, the Mets, of course, have specific capital to potentially pull something off like that. But, of course, you're going to be gutting your farm system for a player of Soto's caliber. Um, which we don't really see those types of players become available very often. And, of course, acquiring Soto would immediately increase the Mets World Series odds for 2022 as well as 2023, and he's locked up through 2024. Um, But the question is what that's going to do for their long-term World Series odds. Of course, the Mets are one of the teams with the bandwidth and financial flexibility to give Soto that record-setting contract that he's going to be looking for before, either before or after he hits the free agent market in a few years. Um, but at the same time, the Mets could potentially, or would, I should say, have to give up their top prospects to a division rival, which is also tough. When you look at guys like Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty, of course, would be the starters that uh, the Nationals would, would potentially want. Um, and just, you know, both sides really having to consider, is Juan Soto going to go to the Mets and become a star for many years? And, are the Mets going to send some of their top prospects to the Nationals, essentially hurt their farm system that they've been rebuilding and making a significant effort to rebuild as well as develop in that area to build a sustainable winner. And that would also, you know, bring the risk of those guys such as Alvarez or Beatty going to the Nationals and, you know, potentially becoming stars in the future. Talking with Pat Ragazzo, Mets beat writer on uh, SI.com. It's tricky as I look at this, Pat, because – like you said, you'd have to break down your farm system. But if you're not going to do that for a guy like Juan Soto, I don't know another major leaguer who you would do that for. I mean, to me, he would seem to be the guy. But Steve Cohen has said that he wants to kind of model what the Dodgers have done. Obviously, the Dodgers have the financial means, as do the Mets, and they have done a great job developing talent and bringing them up through their system. And then they go out and get a trade Turner when they need to. It seems like though making this trade for Soto, which I'm not against personally, Pat, but it seems like if they were to make this kind of trade, they wouldn't be able to follow the Dodger method, at least for the time being. Right, but also keep in mind last year the Dodgers gave up two very good prospects in Herbert Ruiz and Josiah Gray in order to land Max Scherzer, who was a rental at the time, and Trey Turner, who had a few years of control. Now, the Mets and the Dodgers differ in the sense that the Dodgers, at least coming into last year's deadline, had a very deep farm system, whereas the Mets now have traded 
um, or or no longer have three out of three out of their last four first round draft picks prior to this year. Um, so that's also part of it that the Mets are kind of more on they've been rebuilding their farm system and and weren't as deep as as you know a system such as the Dodgers and they are trying to follow that method. So um, again, yes, this would set them back potentially, but at the same time, Juan Soto is a player who you do give up top prospects for because he's a short thing. And it's just one of those rare cases that we haven't seen since A-Rod um, way back when hit the free agent market at a young age that, that Soto's this young and he's on the trade market at 23, turns 24 uh, later in the fall, I believe. And, um, you know, by the time he becomes a free agent, he'll be 25, 26 years old, which is, again, it's just a, a rare case we haven't seen. Yeah, especially for somebody already as accomplished as he is. Um, the, the other big piece uh, of the puzzle heading into the trade deadline on August 2nd, Pat, is is Jacob DeGrom and, and where they stand with him. And it seemed like they were making good progress for about two or three weeks. He made those three rehab starts, came through all of them. And then the news on Tuesday that he pushed back his latest rehab start with some muscle soreness in his right shoulder. So uh, as far as you know, where do we stand with DeGrom right now? And how concerning is this latest bit of news? Right. Well, I'd say concerning regarding the soreness, uh, Jacob DeGrom wound up throwing playing catch on Monday and Tuesday with no issue, and the Mets still scheduled him to throw his sim game today, which was supposed to occur at 7 o'clock, and we're still awaiting an update on that as he was set to throw around five innings of the simulated game, which is going to count for his fourth rehab start. Now, the next step for him, it's really just going to rely on how he feels in the days that follow after tonight depending on how the sim game goes tonight. Um, the Mets are, are taking the situation very step-by-step step as they have with him because really the most important thing is that he's healthy down the stretch and that they can rely on him every five days and into the postseason, and that's the goal. Because if DeGrom has another setback here, a significant setback, uh, you know, looking at last weekend, he felt the, the shoulder soreness on Sunday and he said something and the Mets decided to push him back. But there shouldn't be too much concern because uh, everything – uh, you know, he played catch as usual, and he was still penciled in to throw tonight. But, of course, there is the sobering reality that Jacob DeGrom hasn't pitched for the Mets in over a year. Um, so, of course, the, there's got to be a little bit of a sense of concern just, you know, given that aspect and prior uh, prior factors. But at the same time, as long as the Mets just continue to be, you know, uh, cautionary with him and, uh, you know, don't rush him back, they could still decide to give him another rehab start after this. Um, if not, then he would be potentially slated to rejoin the rotation for the Subway Series next next week if he's kept on schedule. But again, it's really just going to determine how he feels in the coming days. And he obviously, um, you know, is honest with the Mets whether he feels something and and you know how his body feels, how it responds. And um, you know they're, they're getting very close with him. You know, potentially returning to the rotation. It just really comes to the matter of fact of they're going to do what they can in order for him to, uh, you know, to be there when they need him down the stretch. And, and that's the hope right now. Obviously. Yeah. Ma- Max Scherzer's come back looking like Max Scherzer and everything else that that entails on the field, obviously, but his leadership, his presence in the clubhouse, Taiwan Walker has been outstanding. You know, Carrasco has been up and down, but I'd say far more up than down this season. I guess my question for you is if DeGrom doesn't come back and, and I think you still have to say that there's a chance that he doesn't come back this year because we haven't seen him in more than a year. But if DeGrom doesn't come back, do the Mets, as currently constituted, have enough pitching to make a run? I do think that they have enough pitching to, of course, get into the playoffs. They have a very strong shot as they're leading the division and um, are on pace to win close to 100 games, if not more. Um, Guys like David Peterson, you mentioned Taiwan Walker, Max Scherzer. If that group's intact, they do have enough 
you know, for a postseason rotation and they have enough talent there. And it was the Mets rotation is, is extremely deep. You know, you could never have too much pitching and that's definitely true. Um, but a guy like David Peterson, whose role and, and job might be in jeopardy if and when DeGrom does come back soon, um, Peterson's pitched very, very well for the Mets now in the, in the first half of the season. He's really been a godsend for them, and, and, and it speaks volumes to the depth that, that, that the front office built. Um, now, again, Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer is what this team was built around. So with those two pitching at the top of the Mets rotation, it makes them a pretty good contender in the National League, potentially World Series contender. Um, without Jacob DeGrom, I still believe that they do have enough, but to potentially compete for a championship, I'm not, I'm not as sure. Obviously that, that hurts their odds there in that area. If they don't have Jacob DeGrom paired with Max Scherzer down the stretch, um, you know, but on the, on a brighter note, they do have, still have Scherzer who's been great for them. And, they, and they've had a couple other guys step up and, and, and they do have a very talented group. And we've seen it. We saw it in the weeks leading up to the all-star break that, uh, you know, what this rotation can do, especially with a healthy Max Scherzer, that, that it truly does make a difference. But of course, you know, an important aspect of the season and the trajectory of whether where they're hoping to go does rely on DeGrom coming back and, and DeGrom and Scherzer being healthy at the top. You know, Pat, one guy I'll be watching very uh, closely down the stretch of the season is Edwin Diaz. And he's been lights out this year, arguably the best closer in baseball. Really, he's been good since 2019, but he was so bad in 2019 that I still think he's kind of painted with that brush. And he's in a tricky spot because while he's been good and great this year, he hasn't been in that playoff ninth inning, two runners on, two outs situation that closers make their living off of. Are we at a point with Diaz where when he comes out for that situation, whenever it is in the postseason, the Met fans are still holding their breath? Do you get the sense, or do you think that they've moved past that? I do think that Mets fans have moved past their uh, their worries with Edwin Diaz. I mean, he, he really has been one of, if not the best, closers in baseball this year. He struck out nearly, if not more than half the batters he's faced. Um, he's using the slider more often than usual, and it's really, really been making a difference this year. Um, and, and he really just all around has had a near-perfect first half for the Mets and, and really has – made a substantial difference, kind of covered up some some other holes that they've had in the bullpen. Of course, Trevor May has been injured since early May, and there's there's been a little bit of ups and downs from some of the bridge guys to the ninth inning. But again, the Mets, the Mets, uh, I believe, have, have had around only three losses when Diaz appears in a game this year. So um, really, Diaz has, has, every time he's pitched, he's, he's helped the Mets for the most part, win a ball game, and uh, they're going to need more of that performance down the stretch. And obviously, it's a wait and see mode for how he fares in the playoffs. But I think he's shown a good amount of evidence right now that he'll be able to rise to the occasion and, and handle those high pressure situations. So I, uh, I don't think that the fan base really is going to have some concerns there until until he gives them a reason, I guess, to be worried. Well, Pat, I appreciate your time. Great stuff. Uh, should be an interesting last couple months of the season. Tuesday, Wednesday should be a lot of fun, too, at City Field with the first installment of this year's uh, Subway Series. So enjoy all of that. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thanks a lot. That's uh, Pat Ragazzo, Mets beat writer, Fan Nation on SI.com. Mets get going second half of the season tomorrow. Three-game weekend series against the Padres. Uh, excellent pitching matchups in all three of those games. Mets are coming out of the break, and I love when teams do this because not all teams do it. Mets are coming out of the break with their best. Max Scherzer, you Darvish tomorrow, and then you get Chris Bassett and Blake Snell and Carlos Carrasco and Joe Musgrove, the 
all-star hurler for the San Diego Padres. Those are your pitching matchups this weekend. Glaber Torres got the Yankees on the board while we were chatting with Pat. A two-run home run over the high wall in left field in Minute Maid Park. Yankees trail the Astros 5-2. to two. I don't even think they need to win this game. They just need to show some fight. And they just need to show they could put some runs on the board against this Astros team. They trail 5-2, to two, heading to the bottom of the third inning. We'll open up the phone lines when we come back. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Domingo Herman has given up five runs and six hits in two and a third innings. It's his first start of the season. Yankees brought up J.P. Sears, who's done a nice job in spot duty, and he's basically going to be Herman's caddy today. So whenever Herman needs to be taken out or hits his pitch limit, J.P. Sears will pick up the baton from there. Yankees trailing the Astros 5-2. to two. You know, Some thoughts on what Pat Ragazzo said. The Diaz thing to me does bear watching, and he's in a tough spot because – when you're a closer, there's different levels of pressure situations. And Diaz has been as good as there is in baseball all season long. And he was really good last year. And he was good in 2020. And a lot of people thought 2020, well, he was good because there were no fans and there was no pressure. Maybe there was something to that. But he was good in 2021. And he's been excellent in 2022. A deserved all-star closer. But these types of guys, until you do it, okay, until you do it in the highly pressurized situation, you are not given the benefit of the doubt until you actually do it. So Pat's right. Pat Ragazzo, who I just spoke to, covers the Mets, sees them play every day, says that, yeah, he, he, he thinks that Mets fans are past being concerned about Diaz. I think concern might be too strong of a word if that's the word that I use. I'm just going to say, look, if I'm a Mets fan and I'm seeing Diaz come out of the pen to close out game one of the ALDS with a one-run lead, I'm holding my breath a little because he's never, ever been in that spot. And you don't know how someone's going to respond to that until you see how they respond to that. That's all. And you can't change it until you get the opportunity to pitch in that spot. So that's the tricky spot for Diaz or for any closer. Nice sliding catch by Aaron Hicks. Yankees defense really helping out Domingo Herman. What do we got? Two outs in the third. So he's got eight outs recorded. One of them was a sliding catch by Stanton and now a sliding catch by Aaron Hicks. All right, 1-800-919-3776. Let's get some of your thoughts. Let's go to Simon in New Haven. Simon, how you doing? Hey, how are you, sir? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? All right, I I think what we gotta do we we gotta get rid of Boone. I'm sorry, the guy proves he doesn't know how to manage. I mean, he treats these pitchers like garbage. I mean, Montgomery every time Montgomery goes out, it's like a conspiracy against him. They don't want to score runs. I mean, not that they don't try the Yankee hitters, but come on already. How's that Boone's how fault? How much analytics do you have to go by? Hold on, Simon, Simon, I'll let you continue. But how is that Boone's fault that the Yankees don't score for Montgomery? Well, it, well, it's the hitting coach's fault too. I mean, what, yeah, they, what are we paying not... them for? I mean, we don't, we don't need baseball bats. We need ping pong bats. They're so fond of grounding out and popping up all the time. I mean, I wish someone would ask Boone this question. What is the obsession of grounding out and popping up? I mean, is he the manager of a baseball team or is he the manager of a ping pong team? I think he's the manager of a baseball team that has scored 499 runs, which is the most in baseball this year. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I want to keep Simon, you know who I always I, thought? I, I, on... You know who I always thought would be a good manager? Ozzie Gian. Brett Gardner. Oh, God. 
You, you don't think Gardner would be a good manager someday? The way he played the game? Gardner was worse than Gallo. Can I tell you why? Please. I'd love to hear why Brett Gardner was worse than Joey Gallo, who's batting one, because, who's batting 083 over his last 28 games. I know, but, but you have to remember that, that Gallo and Gardner are what we call in baseball a once-in-a-blue-moon type hitter. You know what that is? That's somebody who gets hit once-in-a-blue-moon. And we had four other people like these two who stink. Nick Johnson, Chuck Knobloch, Doug McKavich. You know, but but it's like it's like Gallo doesn't even try. He's so lost. You know why is it when when they come from the other team, the Rangers? Why is it they hit the ball like crazy when they come over here? It's like they leave their baggage at the door and forget how to hit. There's more pressure here. We've seen it time and time again on both sides of town. I mean, don't get me wrong. And I I, I love Judge. We got to keep. But let's get Joey. Let's get let's get uh, Soto. I don't want to see Gallo anymore. I'm tired of seeing Forrest Gump Gar- Gallo Jr. striking out. Let him take his 86 batting average and go join the Mets. No, we'll see what happens with Gallo, uh, Simon. Thank you for the call. Let's go to Arib in Belmore. Arib, how you doing? Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Enjoyed the, the All-Star break weekend. I uh, kind of just wanted to talk to you about Edwin Diaz a little bit, man. You're, you're saying that uh, us Mets saying we should hold our breath a little bit. No, no, well, hold on. I'll let you continue. I'm, I'm saying I would be holding my breath a little just because he hasn't been in that spot. I get it, man, but he's been dealing. He's I know. Been, he's been dealing. I feel I feel more comfortable with Diaz than I can't even. I'm 27. I was born in Flushing. I grew up in Baltimore here. I can't even remember the last closer, maybe not even Billy Wagner. I don't even remember the last closer that I felt more comfortable with than Diaz right now in a Mets uniform, man. I, I'm confident with, with him. I'm ready to go. I want to see him in that spot. Just because we haven't seen him in it, I don't feel like you know we should hold our breath. We should be confident. This is a different team, and uh, I'm ready to go with, with our guys, man. Maybe get another bat, maybe maybe a different reliever for long release. But our closer spot, man, Edwin's the guy, man. He, he's that dude, bro. I'll let you go through, but just want to give my support to Mr. Diaz there, man. I Love appreciate you doing both. that. There Thanks. you go. All right, Arib, good job. I like that. It's really good. It gets me fired up, man. It really does. Keep it going. Keep it going. Come on. I, I... <laughs> October, a chill in the air. Game one. NLDS. Mets Brewers. Christian Yelich leading off the inning, down by one. All of City Field rises to its feet. How's that grab you? Even you, Jake. Even you as a Yankee fan. Got to have some goosebumps right now. Any success with any New York team I'll take after the last couple of decades that we've had, my friends. So, <laughs> hey. Even as a diehard Yankee fan, I got lots of Mets friends that have been waiting a long time to see a World Series. So. You know, look, my, my point about Diaz is this. He's your guy, and he... Look, this is the guy who Brody traded for. I mean, he was unbelievable in Seattle. And I think he was just kind of knocked between the eyes when he came to New York. He was pitching for a Mariners team. He was a young guy. He has obviously electric stuff. He was pitching for a young team that still hasn't been to the playoffs since 2001. So how much pressure are you really? We've seen this, especially with the closer position, for years over and over and over again. 
He comes to New York. It's completely different. There were high expectations. He struggled early. The fans got on him. They were also already mad at him because they were mad at Brody Van Wagenen for making that trade and giving up Kellenic and the prospects and taking on Cano's salary. So Diaz got the brunt of all of that. And then he struggled early. Mets fans got on him more. It started to snowball. And he was awful. I mean, we 2019, he was absolutely awful. In fact, I think he... The, the amount of games that he blew in the first half of that season single-handedly was the biggest reason why the Mets were not in contention. Now, we've seen that before. We've seen guys come to New York and just fall flat on their face. I mean, Jason Bay never got up after falling flat on their face. But let's look at what Edwin Diaz has done since then. Like I said, 2020, he was good. It was the 60-game season. The Mets as a team were disappointing, so not a lot of people were locked in on them. There were no fans in the stands, so not a lot of people were locked in on them. But those who were paying attention to that season and watched Edwin Diaz pitch knew that he was good. Last year, he was very good. And this year, he's lights out. My only point about the closer position, it's one of those spots. Look, the Yankees dealt with this with A-Rod. And there were other things with A-Rod. I mean, a lot of them just didn't like him to begin with. But with A-Rod, every single time he came up to bat in the playoffs in 2005, 2006, 2007, Yankee fans held their breath, and they expected him to not come through. And then 2009 happened, and he was their best player against the Twins. He was their best player against the Angels. Outside of Matsui, he was their best player against the Phillies. And the Yankees, if it wasn't for Alex Rodriguez, would not have won a World Series since 2000. Now, the funny thing about A-Rod is after that 2009 playoff run, he pretty much reverted immediately back to the guy he had been. But he's got that on his resume. And uh, for all of his accomplishments, and there were many, that's one of the biggest in his career is the way he... at times carried the Yankees to the 2009 World Series. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll get to some NFL talk coming up and the NBA too. Um, Donovan Mitchell is still out there. How much longer is he going to be out there? How much longer until he is here? And by here, I mean New York City. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. Domingo Herman went three in his return to Major League action on the mound. Good sign that he's back out there and got that under his belt. He got hit around a little bit by a very good team that has the Yankees' number right now, J.P. Sears, who's the Yankees' 27th man and has done a nice job for them in spot duty this season, has come on to pitch the fourth inning in relief of Domingo Herman. So in an ideal world for the Yankees, Herman can solidify that spot in the pitching rotation that is currently vacated with Luis Severino on the injured list. 1-800-919-3776, the number to call if you want to weigh in. Uh, a couple of NBA notes, and we'll talk about the uh, Donovan Mitchell situation and if there uh, could be any traction in the coming days or hours. A lot of chatter. A lot of chatter on Twitter. If you uh, type Donovan Mitchell into your search bar, it seems like there could be something imminent. And to be honest with you, if you hooked me up to a lie detector test and said, 
Will the Knicks be the team that ultimately completes the trade for Donovan Mitchell this offseason? I would say yes. I, I do expect that to happen, and I do think it should happen from the Knicks' perspective. It's just a matter of, like, any business deal or any business transaction, what's the cost going to be? And that's where they are right now. The Knicks and the Jazz, and look, Leon Rose has made his living negotiating, and Danny Ainge has certainly made a second career or a third career or a fourth career. He's he's done a lot between playing baseball and playing in the NBA and coaching and being an executive, but he's an astute negotiator as well. So, and that's where we are right now. I do think that the Knicks are going to have to give up some commodities that they don't want to give up, and that's part of doing business. You got a 25-year-old, 25-point-a-game scorer who's available, who wants to come to your team, who's from the area, which helps, but it's certainly not a deal-breaker. He's performed in the playoffs, averaged 30 points a game in the playoffs, and you just have to ask yourself, does Donovan Mitchell make your team better with obviously factoring in what the Knicks would presumably have to give up? And the answer to me is yes. Another thing that caught my eye, James Harden recently of the Brooklyn Nets, signs a two-year deal with a player option for the second year, a two-year $68.6 million contract. So Harden is guaranteed $33 million this coming season. Next year's salary is $35.6 million. Now, the thing that got my attention is the fact that Harden had declined the final year player option of his previous contracts, which would have paid him $47.4 million. So he declined $47 million and then signed for a guaranteed $33 million this year. The reasoning that is being given, and this is reporting by ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, the reasoning is that Harden wanted to present the 76ers with more salary cap flexibility so they could sign free agents like P.J. Tucker and Daniel House and add to their depth in the hopes of chasing a championship. Now, that sounds awesome. You know, you, you that's the... That's all fans of a certain team want to hear. Tom Brady did that for years. And, you know, Brady obviously had a very wealthy wife who was making three times as much money as he was, so money really wasn't a factor in the Brady bunch in household. But he still did it. I mean, Brady all those years in New England could have held the Patriots' feet to the fire and demanded to be one of the highest-paid quarterbacks in the NFL, and he didn't. He was in the middle of the road in terms of salary, and that allowed them to build up the talent around him, which helped lead to all those Super Bowls. But here's the question I have. Now, NBA fans have watched Harden his entire career, his entire tenure in Houston, the one year he spent in Brooklyn, and then the end of last season in Philadelphia. Does this sound like James Harden? Does this sound like who James Harden is? See, that's where the red flag goes up for me. Now, let's just backtrack the last, what is this, July of 2022. Let's go back to December of 2020. So that's 19 months. The last 19 months, December of 2020, Harden is a member of the Houston Rockets, has demanded a trade, and he shows up for the season out of shape. He loafs through seven games with the Rockets until they're 
backed into a corner and have no choice but to deal him, which they do to the Brooklyn Nets. So he goes to the Nets. He's reinvigorated. Within two weeks, it looks like he's lost 15 pounds. He's playing at an all-star MVP level again. He's actually playing so well that he's generating some MVP buzz. He's formed this beautiful combination with either Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, whichever one of his teammates happened to be on the floor with him on a particular night. And then we know how that season ended in the playoffs. Harden got injured, Irving got injured, and the Nets lost in the second round. The next year begins, and Harden shows up out of shape again because he's pissed at Kyrie Irving that he won't get vaccinated, and therefore he can't play, and Harden's going to have to do more to pick up the slack. So let's just talk about what kind of a teammate James Harden is. So he is asked to pick up more of the slack because one of their three stars is unable to play or not allowed to play. And his response to that, instead of picking up more of the slack, he comes in overweight and out of shape and loafs his way through the first half of the season to the point where Brooklyn was backed into a corner and had to trade him to the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm not done. (laughs) I'm not done. We were... Going over the night last 19 months for James Harden, I think we're up to month 14 now. He comes out like gangbusters his first two or three games in Philadelphia. Two of them were against an undermanned Knicks team. He puts up triple doubles. He looks like the James Harden of old. This pick and roll combination with Joel Embiid is the thing of beauty. And then all of a sudden, he's 34 years old. And he can't get past the defender as easily as he once did. He was never a great shooter. Embiid got hurt in the playoffs, so he had to carry more of the load, and instead he was unable to do virtually anything offensively and ended up limping his way into the offseason. So this is the guy who we're expected to believe turned down $47 million and is going to play for $33 million for the good of the team? Am I the only one for whom that does not add up? Just caught my eye. Now, that being said, Philadelphia has the potential to be very good. You know, Embiid, the last two years, has been the second-best player in the NBA. Harden is the big key to that team. And this actually has a sense of Harden betting on himself, kind of like Aaron Judge is doing right now. But after watching Harden play last year down the stretch, even when Embiid went out, he fractured his facial bone in the playoffs, and Harden all of a sudden had the opportunity to carry the team and be the number one guy. He just couldn't do it. So why at this stage of his career is he turning down $47 million guaranteed to bet on himself? Again, it doesn't make sense. And if that's not, you know, years ago, the Minnesota Timberwolves signed Joe Smith as a free agent. They paid him some amount of money under the table in order to circumnavigate the salary cap. They got caught. They ended up getting a hefty fine, sacrificing first-round draft picks. It was a big deal. It was really a faux pas by uh, Glenn Taylor, their owner, and the organization for Minnesota, and it really set them back a couple of years. This, Am I wrong, or does this not stink of that? I mean, what's Har- Harden's really voluntarily giving up $14 million this year for the good of the team? 
when has James Harden ever done anything for the good of the team? When has James Harden ever done anything for the good of anybody other than James Harden? Again, it doesn't make sense to me. This This. is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. So the the concern for the Yankee fan is that it's this is what has tripped them up in recent postseasons. They get to the playoffs, they look good going in, but when you are facing a higher level of pitcher, your bats go silent. And this is also to bring it back to the Joey Gallo situation. This is why Gallo can't be part of the lineup in the playoffs or part of the lineup past August second. And I, I don't know, you know, if they're going to – August 2nd is important only because that's when they're going to presumably bring in the person to take his spot in the lineup. I, I don't see Joey Gallo being part of a trade. I see Joey Gallo being released and probably picked up somewhere else because another team that's not in contention and doesn't play in the cauldron that is New York City could use a guy like Gallo. He had 35 home runs last season. Somebody will pick him up. He's young. He's a good fielder. He still could work the count. But it hasn't worked in New York. And that's why you can't go into the postseason with somebody batting 165. I know they've been able to get away with it so far. And they'll continue to get away with it in the regular season. But as we have seen and said time and time and time again, the postseason is something entirely different. Now, as for the Knicks, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of chatter about Donovan Mitchell today. Not really, you know, it's not Woj or Shams tweeting out information that a Donovan Mitchell trade is imminent. So we're not reporting anything here. But this has kind of been obviously on the forefront of all of our minds, Knicks fans' minds, and people who follow the NBA's minds for weeks now because it makes sense on so many levels. The Knicks find themselves in a position where they do have the required assets should they choose to part with them. They have assets that you would think that Utah is interested in. They are a team that Donovan Mitchell wants to play for. And let's be honest. I know if you put aside the fact that you're upset about how much your team is going to have to give up for Donovan Mitchell, you have to ask yourself the question, does he make you a better team? That's the only thing that should be on Knicks fans' minds. Not four first-round draft picks, not five first-round draft picks, not pick swaps, none of that stuff. The question you have to ask yourself, does Donovan Mitchell make your team better? And in most iterations of this potential trade, the answer, in my opinion, is yes. Depending on what you give up in return, and most of the things you're going to give up in return are draft picks. So that does not weaken the current constructed team anyway. So in that scenario, yeah, the answer is he makes you a better team. On NBA Today, Tim McMahon was speaking about Donovan Mitchell and how the Utah Jazz are viewing the Mitchell situation. Well, certainly time is on the Jazz's side in the sense that Donovan Mitchell does have three years plus a player option remaining on his contract. But let's be honest, the Jazz don't want 34-year-old first-time head coach Will Hardy to go into training camp and have the Donovan Mitchell saga, the Donovan Mitchell drama Mm. dominate the storyline 
on a day-to-day basis. We saw that happen with Steven Silas in Houston when James Harden was forcing his way out. And it's a different situation. Donovan is not forcing his way out. But I think we all understand that Donovan Mitchell's strong preference would be to go ahead and get traded to New York. We've seen this train come down the track for quite some time now. And, you know, from the Jazz's perspective, they need to be able to turn the page sooner than later and commit full-blown to that rebuilding project. But we also understand Danny Ainge does not take discounts and trades, and that's going to be the priority, getting that maximum price for their proven all-star guard. Danny Ainge also has to do what's best for his franchise. So, yeah, he's got this record, and it's by no means unblemished. I mean, he was a successful general manager, president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics. He was there for nearly two full decades. But... um. They won one championship. You know, he's not Bob Myers who put together a team that has won four championships and been to six NBA finals. They won one championship. They were at the finals one other time. Uh, if you give him partial credit for this year, two other times. So, yeah, he is successful, but he's not unblemished. So he also has to do what's best for his organization. So, yeah, would he rather... I'm just throwing numbers out there. Would he rather six first-round draft picks than five? Yeah, he would. But at the end of the day, five is better than nothing if the trade completely falls apart. So it's just a staring contest right now. These two sides are seeing who's going to blink first, who's going to cave first. My experience in following these trades is that the team that re- – what's the most valuable commodity in this entire transaction? It's Donovan Mitchell. It's not the draft picks. It's not the young players that the Knicks would be sending back to Utah. It's Donovan Mitchell. So generally, the team or the entity that desires the most valuable commodity, that's the team that has to acquiesce a little more. But we'll see how it plays out. Now, that we heard from ESPN's Tim McMahon a moment ago, ESPN's Tim Bonteps also on NBA Today on why the Knicks want Donovan Mitchell. Well, clearly, there's a lot of motivation on the Knicks side in particular, I think, to get this done. And let's just look at the Knicks point guard position, like I was just talking about. The last time the Knicks had an all-star point guard was Mark Jackson back in 1989. The last Mm. time they had an all-star guard was Allen Houston 20 years ago. So this is a franchise that has been waiting to get a star guard to build around for a very long time. And look, since Leon Rose got to the Knicks a couple of years ago to run the basketball operations department, the goal for this team has been to get star players. Leon Rose represented a ton of stars at CAA, guys like Donovan Mitchell. They went out and got a bunch of draft picks that could get them a guy like Donovan Mitchell. They signed contracts they could trade later to get a guy like Donovan Mitchell. They even went to Utah and signed Johnny Bryant to be on Tom Thibodeau's assistant uh, staff assistant coach. He was Donovan Mitchell's workout guy with the with the Utah Jazz. So, you put all that together, Donovan Mitchell clearly seems to me to be a guy they need to get, and it also is a guy that gets them in the door having a first star in the door, something they have been able to do in a long time. You can't get more stars till you get one. Donovan Mitchell might not get the Knicks in the playoffs or to the championship of contention they want to be, but he'd give them a chance to build around somebody, which they haven't had the ability to do in several years. And they have other guys now to do that. You would still have R.J. Barrett. You now have Jalen Brunson. And then you still have a guy who, not this past season, but the season before, was a second-team All-NBA performer in Julius Randle. Two years ago, Julius Randle, according to the All-NBA teams and the people who vote for them, was one of the 10 best players in the NBA. For a single season. That's who he was. He had a significant drop-off last year. But Julius Randle's an important piece of this. Which is why, if I'm the Knicks, 
you have to do what it takes to bring in Donovan Mitchell. And R.J. Barrett, to me, is the only untouchable guy. Because you think about the possibilities of Mitchell in a starting lineup with Barrett still on the roster. And it sounds like Utah doesn't have any interest in Barrett either because you're going to have to pay Barrett. The Knicks are ultimately going to have to pay Barrett. It doesn't look like they're giving him his big max extension this offseason. But in the near future, if he continues along his current trajectory, he's going to get paid by the Knicks. So if you trade Mitchell, let's put the other pieces aside and we'll get to that. But if you trade for Donovan Mitchell and you keep R.J. Barrett, what does your starting five look like? You have Jalen Brunson. You have Donovan Mitchell. You have R.J. Barrett. You have Julius Randle. And you have Mitchell Robinson. That is a pretty good starting five. You have an all-star. You have a potential all- Well, you have two all-stars. You have Julius Randle, who did not play like an all-star last year, but was an all-star the year before. You have a bona fide all-star in Donovan Mitchell. And then you have a potential all-star in Jalen Brunson if he continues along his current trajectory. Mitchell Robinson has gotten better each and every season. R.J. Barrett has gotten better each and every season. Now, how do you make it happen? Well, what's a fair price if you're the Knicks? For me, it's four first-round draft picks. Now, you've got 11 over the next eight years, okay? I give them four first-round draft picks. I give them the opportunity for two additional pick swaps. I give them Evan Fournier, but that's more because the salaries have to match up. Fournier makes $18 million, and you've got to come close to what Donovan Mitchell makes, which is north of $30 million. And that's easy anyway because Mitchell just takes Fournier's spot in the starting lineup. And then I'll let them pick two guys outside of Barrett on the rest of the roster. Any two. Obviously, the core group that you would think they would be interested in are those young wing players that they have. Cam Reddish, Quinton Grimes, Emmanuel Quickly, and Obi Toppin. I'll let them pick two of them, four first-round picks, two pick swaps, Evan Fournier. And you know what? If they really want Deuce McBride, you can include him in the package as well. Now, it's probably going to go to five. I'll tell you. To get this done, four seems like the reasonable number. Danny Ainge is probably asking for six. It's probably going to land at five. So if you're the Knicks and if you're a Knicks fan and you're trying to see how this trade's going to impact your team for the foreseeable future, does that make your team better? Well, let's see what we have left over. The starting lineup with Mitchell in it instead of Fournier and everybody else still intact is clearly, clearly better than you've had at any point in recent years. And then, yeah, you lose some off the bench. Now, if I'm Utah, the two guys that I would take off of the Knicks, so if I'm the Knicks, the two guys who I least want to part with, but you got to part with something that you like, the two guys who I would find the most value for the Knicks right now are Obi Toppin and Quinton Grimes. And, and I, it seems like it's heading in that direction, that that's who Utah would want. That's who I would want. That's who the Knicks should want to keep. And I think that's who Utah's going to want. You know, Grimes didn't play a lot last year. It took him a while to find a spot in the rotation. And then he was injured late in the season. But when he played, he was excellent. Grimes is better than Emmanuel Quickly. We haven't seen a lot of Cam Reddish, but he doesn't really seem to fit what Tom Thibodeau is looking for. But he may find his opportunity now if the Knicks trade Obi Toppin and Quinton Grimes. And you don't like to see Toppin go. But you've got to give something up to get a guy who scored 30 points a game for an entire playoff series. 
Those guys don't just fall into your lap. And then what is it? It is a step in the right direction. It's a lot easier to build your depth, which is what you would have to rebuild if you give up a Grimes and you give up a Toppin and you give up a Deuce McBride. It's a lot easier to build up your depth than it is to bring in stars. And if you don't want to give a five or six Knicks first-round picks, let's just look at recent first-round draft picks. You know, last year, Grimes was the first-round draft pick. The year before that, Toppin. He hasn't been a home run. He finished strong at the end of last year when he finally got an opportunity to play consistent minutes when Randall shut it down. But he hasn't been a home run. Quickly hasn't been a home run. He was a nice find for the 25th overall pick. But he's not Cade Cunningham. He's not Scotty Barnes. Frank Nielakina. These are your recent first-round draft picks. So you have to ask yourself, what have the Knicks done with their first-round draft picks in recent years? Obviously, Barrett is the one guy who's the keeper. He was the number three overall pick. He was the biggest name coming in out of college. And he's performed as you would want a number three overall pick to perform. That's why you want to keep him. But think about what these picks have become for the Knicks. You know, you don't want to give up a first-round pick. You used a first-round pick on Frank Nilekina. Used a first-round pick on Obi Toppin, eighth overall in the draft. Obi Toppin's a nice player. But what is his ceiling? Is his ceiling 25 points a game? Because that's what Mitchell brings you right now. And he's got flaws, too, and he's got holes, too, which is why he's available. But he makes your team better. Pat O'Keefe with you here at 987-1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Robbie in Mass. Robbie, what's going on? Hey, Pat, good to talk to you. We talked about Ranger hockey this year, and I, by the way, I just wanted to tell you, and, and you and Don did such a great job, and obviously Pete and, and Kenny, so congratulations on a great season. I wanted to ask you first about the, the Toronto deal, and then I'll move on to the Yankees for a second. And also, I would love to see Donovan Mitchell come to the Knicks. So anyway, about, about the Toronto signing, I'll get your thoughts for a second, and I'll ask you about the Yankees. Because I got a lot to say about the Yankees, okay? <laughs> you usually do, Robbie. Go ahead. I try. All right. I'll get you. All right. First of all, all right. Why in God's name are you sitting guys in game one of a series against Houston and then trying to make an experiment with Domingo Harmon in game two? I know it's a game in July, but you know what? This team has to prove that they can beat these guys. It doesn't seem like they can beat them. They beat them in some walk-offs. And I can't really get on the team. I mean, how do you get on a team that's this good? It's been fun, all right? It's been a great season so far. But when I see what Bowie does at times, it really makes me shake my head, whether it's whether it's playing Marlon Gonzalez uh, you know, on the, in the first game instead of Kyna Palapa. Why? These are starting shortstop. Why, Giancarlo Stanton paying $30 million to sit out of first game? You, sit, you play the first game, you win the first game, then you want to play LeCastro in the second game, it's fine. He's got LeCastro in game two. A punch and Judy here. I mean, I mean, I don't get what he's doing. All this analytical garbage is a bunch of crap. I mean, and the other thing is, too, shifting for a guy hitting 150 with the bases loaded and two outs in the ninth inning. What are you doing? What's with the shifting? Why must they shift? Can a Major League Baseball player make a play? I mean, all this analytical garbage, it's really ruined the game. I mean, why can't a Major League Baseball player make a play? Are they so afraid that they have to shift for a guy hitting 150? It really is kind of sad. 
And, well, I, um, I, I got to say to your point, I, I agree. I, I'm a little turned off on how they approach this doubleheader. You know, yeah, Judge right. and Stanton and Trevino. And I'll put Trevino aside because catchers don't catch both ends of the right, doubleheader. Course, and that's fine. Absolutely, but definitely. they're acting as if Judge and Stanton just went and played, you know, in the Olympics. Right, for, for three days. They were gone in the All-Star game for three days. They hung out in Los Angeles. They played three innings, four innings. They took a couple of swings. Stanton hit a mammoth home run, and they're acting like they need all of this rest. I mean, like I said at the beginning of the show, you remember the days, Robbie, where you'd come back from the All-Star break, and everybody played on Thursday. The All-Star break was three days. It was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now they're acting like this is such a hardship that because, by the way, the reason that they're playing today is because of the lockout. These two games right. were supposed to be the first week of the season. Wait, wait, wait. So, but my, my point is that they are acting like this is such a hardship that they lost a day off and they're playing after the All-Star break. And then it's just ridiculous, Kyle. Like the, the thing that really bothers me is that, you know, when you go out and you get kind of flop in the tree and you're kidding a guy that hits 230 as opposed to 270. And I was going to say one more thing, and thanks for the time. Joey Gallo has got to go. I'm sick of hearing positives. Oh, well, you know, he's a really good outfielder. And, oh, he, You know what? They had to tell us today, Michael Kay had to tell us, I don't know whoever it was, had to say, oh, well, you know, he got to walk today. So that, that, you know, that moves everybody. I mean, come on. Can we stop making excuses? for? I mean, can you imagine watching, you know, baseball 20 years ago? A guy in 161 would even make AAA baseball. And it's absolutely ridiculous to start him in a game against Houston. And I'm telling you right now, Pat, the, the New York Yankees are a really good 162-game, you know, baseball team, but they need a catalyst. They haven't had a legitimate leadoff hitter since Johnny Damon. Give me somebody who puts pressure on the defense. Give me somebody who gets the hell in base and hits 300. Not one guy who hits 300 on this team. Not one. I know average doesn't mean anything anymore. That's BS to me. Tell me, all the, tell me the 98 Yankees. Look at that dynasty. Look what those guys hit. Even the power hitters. Even Tino hit 267, 270, right? I mean, yeah. it's a joke. Donaldson has been a disaster. I don't care what anybody says. The guy's hitting 226, and Riddle's been wonderful, but this is still his 220. I don't, I, I don't get it. Is that, if you think average in itself you know, really plays a, a major benefit in baseball now, even in the playoffs, because let's face it, the Braves hit, what, 245 last year? So, anyway, thanks for the time, Pat. I always appreciate you guys. Do a great job. Great call, by the way. Excellent. Outstanding. So, thanks, thanks Robbie. Man, as always. Thanks for the call, man. so much. That's the amazing thing about this Yankees season, though, because – and I've had callers ask me to compare these Yankees to the 1998 Yankees, which you can't compare, there are, I, other than win percentage. And that's starting to trickle off as it is. These Yankees, for a long time this season, were winning games at a similar rate to the 98 Yankees, but that's really where it stops. But there are so, there are so many holes for a 64-29 and 29 team in this lineup. I mean, Aaron Judge, I, I've never been a fan of Aaron Judge hitting leadoff. He's hitting leadoff here in game two. That means if you were to bat Aaron Judge leadoff 40 times in a year, okay? And I don't think it's that high, but let's just say you bat Aaron Judge leadoff 40 times in a season. That's 40 times that you are taking your best hitter, your best power hitter, your best RBI man, and you're putting him up with nobody on base. That is 40 fewer at-bats that he's coming up where he would have a chance to bat with somebody on base. Why you would willingly do that, I don't know. As Chaz McCormick rounds the bases for Houston, a two-run home run. 7-2. Look, that statement that the Mets made 
right before the All-Star break, taking two out of three against Atlanta. Max Scherzer setting the tone. The Houston Astros are making a very similar statement right now. The Yankees did not play these two games to win. I'm sorry. They didn't play these two games like they were important. And you know what? Maybe they're not. And maybe that will be proven correct when all is said and done at the end of this year. But there's not much to look forward to for the Yankees the remainder of the season. That's how dominant they've been. That's how great they've been. There's not much to look forward to. But one of the things to look forward to is to see if this team can prove that it can beat the Houston Astros in a big spot. Because this year they have not. They've beaten them twice, and they both had to win both of those games on walk-off wins at home. They could have easily been 0-6. Think about that. They could have easily been 0-6 against Houston while trailing 7-2 here in the sixth inning tonight. I mean, you hate to be the guy who's sitting on the radio for three hours nitpicking a team that's winning 75% of its games, 70% of its games. But when you have a number three hitter in Matt Carpenter who batted below 200 last year and was available for the picking in late April, you have a third baseman in Josh Donaldson batting 225. Yeah, Rizzo's been great, but he's batting 225. You have Joey Gallo batting 165. You have Kyle Agashioka batting 179. I know that batting average is not the important stat that it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. I know, but it's still an indicator. It's still an indicator of what you are getting on a consistent basis in the lineup. And there's holes in this lineup. And starting Herman in game two was curious. They said they wanted to start Jameson Tyone. That was ultimately, or that was originally the plan. Start Tyone and Montgomery, this doubleheader coming out of the All-Star break. And then they decided they wanted to give Tyone an extra day of rest. So I guess the options are limited behind Tyone. Because Garrett Cole pitched on Sunday. So he would have had to go on three days rest. So he's out. And then Nestor Cortez pitched in the All-Star game. So... You want to hold him. He's pitching Sunday in Baltimore. So that kind of left Herman as the only option once you decided that you wanted to give Tyone that extra day. But hey, obviously the Yankees did not feel that they needed to prove to themselves they could beat this team or prove to this team that they could beat them because that's not how they've approached this game. Judge hasn't played the field. Stanton sat a game. Donaldson sat a game. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, that one I don't understand. Why is your starting shortstop, who wasn't anywhere near Los Angeles for the All-Star game, why is he not starting at shortstop for the first game out of the break? You know, I'm listening to the broadcast driving around today on the radio. Ruko's doing it, this series anyway, with Susan. Did a nice job. But they're talking about how, oh, Aaron Boone, talking to him before the game, it's such a hardship. I mean, they didn't use that word. I'm exaggerating a little. But it was mentioned by Boone how it's so unusual to be playing a noon local game coming out of the All-Star break. You're coming out of the All-Star break. You know, you weren't playing in Fenway Park last night on Sunday Night Baseball. And then had to get on a plane and get to the new city at 3 in the morning and be on the field for a noon baseball game. They were on the All-Star break. It's not that much of a hardship. 
I just don't like the tone that they've set for the second half of the season. Now, they don't see these guys again, so it probably doesn't have any carryover effect. But it's disappointing to me the way they approach this first doubleheader out of the break. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.